WWE took its troops to war last night in Chi-Town, but perhaps no war was more brutal, more barbaric, and certainly not more memorable than the full gear war to settle the score between Hangman Page and Swerve Strickland. And let's just hope it did indeed settle the score, because realistically, what else can they do? Oh yeah, and Ronda Rousey is back, ladies and gentlemen. And that's not the only return we're here to talk about, but she's in a different environment, a really different environment. There was also a UFC pay-per-view once upon a time. I will be talking all about that and more in this episode, so sit back and enjoy the ride. I do have a trifecta of show reviews to get through, but as you heard just a minute ago, the baddest woman on the planet is back in business, and apparently Microsoft agrees with me that baddest isn't a word. I spoke about it a little bit on the board, but I wanted to make mention of Ronda Rousey's AEW debut, although it wasn't really AEW per se. It was on last week's episode of Ring of Honor Wrestling and kind of came out of nowhere. I mean, we all heard the rumors and read the reports of her being backstage, but I felt that this is something that definitely should have been promoted well in advance. Had she had a heavier schedule this year, Rousey would have probably won the race for worst female wrestler of 2023, at least on my list, that is. But despite how I personally feel about her, I cannot deny the fact that she's still a marquee star. She is one of the biggest and certainly most recognizable talents AEW has, and definitely the biggest woman star that they've ever had. So why they choose to debut her the way they did is beyond me. That said, I thought the match was actually really good. And this is the best use of Rousey, where her weaknesses can be hidden in a tag match and build to that hot tag, though her partner Marina Shafir isn't much better in the ring. But I like the constant tease of Rousey forcing Athena into submission, but eventually ended up submitting Billy Starks instead. It just creates more hype for the eventual one-on-one -on -one match between Rousey and Athena, which I'd assume will be headlining the final battle card in a couple of weeks. Let's face it, that's the biggest match you're ever going to get using any combination of women on the ROH roster. Some say Rousey appeared as a favor to Marina, which may have been true, but in all seriousness, what was the favor? Marina was a complete afterthought in that match, a background player. She wasn't highlighted at all. The star of the match was clearly Ronda, and the match to come out of that, it was Ronda versus Athena. It'll be interesting to see what they do with Ronda henceforth. In an attempt to make a smooth transition here, given Rousey's previous life in the UFC, this is as good a time as any to talk about what went down at UFC 295, which seemed like an eternity ago. The featherweights kicked us off with Diego Lopez taking on Pat Sabatini. Lopez secured an early takedown and then dropped Sabatini with an uppercut on the way back to his feet before putting him away via TKO. Up next in lightweight action, Benoit Saint-Denis scored with a head kick out of nowhere to vanquish his opponent, Matt Frivola, with a, with a KO. Jessica Andrade returned to the octagon against Mackenzie Dern in the strawweight division. It was back and forth for a while, but in the end it was Andrade hitting a left-right combo to pick up the KO victory. Second fight from the top was to crown an interim heavyweight title with Sergei Pavlovich taking on Tom Aspinall. If the world didn't know who these guys were before the fight, they sure as hell do now, especially Ospinal, who came from behind to land a vicious right cross to Pavlovich's temple for the knockout to claim the title. And then in the main event, it was a battle for the light heavyweight title, with Alex Pereira picking up yet another KO victory as Jiri Prozhashka really just walked blindly into a surprising left hook, so we have a new champion to close out the night. And UFC 296 is right around the corner, so stay tuned.
Continuing the momentum into last weekend in what I thought was supposed to be AEW's final pay-per-view of the year, but that was until Tony made the recent announcement of the World's End show, this one was full gear and I have to say it didn't disappoint. Well, most of it didn't, but I'll get to that. I missed the zero hour as I often do for these shows, but they did talk about the results later on, though it's probably important to mention here based on the significance of the match. It was for the ROH Tag Team titles with MJF and his reluctantly selected tag team partner Samoa Joe, who was replacing the still-injured Adam Cole, defending against the Gun Club representing Bullet Club Gold. Joe helped Max retain, but then quickly made a stage left exit, leaving MJF alone against the rest of Bullet Club, who really did a number on his knee with a steel chair and a post-match beatdown. The main card started with Excalibur, Nigel, and Shivani on commentary. First matchup was the trios match featuring Christian Cage and his two disciples, for lack of a better term, Nick Wayne and Luchasaurus, who as of this past Wednesday is now known as Killswitch against the combination of Adam Copeland, Sting, and Darby Allen, with all three babyfaces wearing their war paint, and I believe this is the first time I've seen Copeland with a painted face. Ric Flair was also out in the babyface corner. The action got underway as Wayne took a cheap shot at Darby, and the entire match essentially built to a one-on-one -on -one confrontation between former best friends Copeland and Cage, which never ended up happening. Darby took a nasty spill out to the floor after being chokeslammed by the dinosaur over the top rope right into the ring apron, and this guy's back has to look like mashed potatoes right about now, just in time for your American Thanksgiving. Wayne actually showed some personality in the match, mocking Flair's strut at one point, which didn't sit too well with the Nature Boy. In fact, Flair got in on the action as well, went face-to-face -face with Christian on the floor, but it was Christian who ended up pulling a page from Flair's book with a low blow. And then just when it finally looked as though Copeland would get his hands on Christian, Cage just ran through the crowd and never came back, basically deserting his two teammates. This led to Luchasaurus taking all three babyface finishers, with Darby getting the pin after the coffin drop. Shivani then goes to the stage and brings out referee Bryce Remsburg to explain the situation involving the world title. Remsburg confirms that MJF is injured and will not be able to defend the title, so unfortunately the match is off. Just when Shivani was about to announce Jay White as the new champion via forfeit, Adam Cole limps out on crutches and says that if MJF cannot defend his title, he'll do it for him, and this is later approved about that a guy with a broken leg can defend the title on behalf of another guy with a broken leg, because that makes a ton of sense. Jay White says he's taken Cole out before, and if he wants to stick his neck out for his best friend, White will do it again for good. At this point, Taz replaces Shivani on commentary, and we go into the next match for the international title, with Orange Cassidy defending against John Moxley. To no one's surprise, Mox does color pretty early after some vicious headbutts. Orange hits the stun dog millionaire, but Mox responds with some repeat elbows to the collarbone. The finish was kind of similar to the one between John Cena and Solo Sokoa at the last WWE event. Orange landed a trifecta of orange punches, but with Mox still on his feet, he hit three more and then hit the beach break to pick up the upset victory to keep the title. There was a video announcing the start of the Continental Classic, which already got underway this past week on Dynamite, as ever, and as everyone already knows, Mark Briscoe was announced for the tournament. Tony Storm challenged Hikaru Shida for the women's title up next. I have to say, not only is Timeless Tony Storm the greatest character that AEW has ever produced, but this is probably the best use of Luther. He reminds me of a combination of Daddy Warbucks from Annie and Ernst Blofeld from the James Bond movies. I feel like he should have a cat on his lap every time. He compliments the character so well. Mariah May is also shown backstage watching a screen from a very weird angle. 
There was a funny spot where Tony winds up like she's throwing a pitch and then delivers a forearm. She also uses a shoe at one point, but it doesn't work. And then as Sheeta attempts to retaliate with a kendo stick, Luther ends up sacrificing himself to take the shot instead. As the ref is distracted by Luther and Sheeta at ringside, Tony stuffs some kind of object into the back of her tights and then delivers a running hip attack to Sheeta in the corner to pick up the win and the title. Definitely the right call in my opinion. Nothing against Sheeta, but Tony Storm is just on fire right now. After the match, Mariah May comes out to celebrate with Tony. Renee is in the back with Eddie Kingston congratulating him on retaining the ROH title against Jay Lethal on the Zero Hour, which is another match that I think probably should have been saved for Final Battle. Kingston announces himself for the Continental Classic and adds that every match that he participates in will also be for the ROH and strong openweight titles that he holds. I guess that's pretty interesting, although it proves that the last thing this company needs is more titles. The four-way ladder match was up next for the AEW World Tag Team titles with Ricky Starks and Big Bill defending against LFI, House of Black, and FTR. And this was about as crazy a match as you'd expect, but still wasn't as crazy as what was yet to come. There was a cool yet confusing spot where Dax superplexed his own partner Cash onto the pile of opponents at ringside. Brody and Bill went at it at one point, eliciting several chants of meat from the audience, which led me to believe that Sean Stasiak was somewhere out there. Cash delivered a pile driver to Malachi onto a ladder ramp, and then Brody, who was busted open at this point, destroyed Drillistico with a Gonzo Bomb, which is basically a package pile driver, on top of a ladder that was bridged between the steps and the outside barricade. Any wrong move could have ended badly for both of these guys, so I'm happy they walked out okay. Brody was then positioned on that same ladder bridge, and Cash hit a big splash off the top rope, which finally collapsed the ladder. The end came with Cash and Starks up on the ladder, struggling for position, with Starks knocking Cash off by using the belt, and then in a very surprising outcome, Starks and Bill retained their titles. More championships were defended next as Chris Statlander put her TBS title on the line against Sky Blue and Julia Hart. It was probably the match that I was least looking forward to, but I actually thought it was the better of the two women's matches on the show. Sky Blue really needs to come up with a new finisher. That Code Blue thing just looks so ridiculous, even by wrestling standards. The finish was basically Statlander hitting Saturday Night Fever on Blue, only to be knocked down by Julia, who steals the pin on Blue to win the title. I have to say this was the right call, as Julia seems to be developing a pretty interesting character. Shivani is back in the ring and makes mention of the blockbuster announcement that was teased by Tony Khan, and then he brings out the newest member of the AEW roster, Will Ospreay. I guess this is a good get for AEW, but not all that surprising considering that Ospreay has already worked a couple of AEW matches already. I was actually hoping he'd sign with WWE for at least one WrestleMania before going back to AEW, but I actually didn't realize that Ospreay is only 30. He still has his whole career ahead of him, so pretty much all the time in the world at this point to do what he wants. He says he's happy to be part of the team, but he isn't coming in just yet. He continues that he still has some business to finish in New Japan, but will be on the road to Revolution next year, and basically announces himself for the Wembley show next summer. I'm glad that we at least didn't have to see Tony Khan on TV to personally make that announcement. And from that, we go to this. I think I need to take a breath, and probably an Advil here before I describe this match. It was the Texas death match between Hangman Page and Swerve Strickland, and it was a death match, all right, to the 10th degree. I cannot imagine how they can possibly top themselves after this. Hangman immediately races to the ring, and the action starts right away, which I think was a good call considering the story. 
Hangman brutalizes Swerve almost immediately. He duct tapes his hands behind his back and then brings out a staple gun and starts stapling his chest and face. And with Swerve literally pouring blood, Hangman leans back and drains some of that blood into his own open mouth. Disgusting is probably the best word to describe this sequence. I guess it made sense, but had nothing to do with wrestling, and I can't imagine that anyone in their right mind would have enjoyed seeing this. I remember an ROH match between Hangman and Kazarian from a few years ago where they were just licking up each other's spit, but this trumps literally every disgusting act that I have ever seen on a wrestling show. This was gross. There was a barbed wire chair used at one point, and then Swerve came back with a low blow, and Nana finally cut Swerve's hands free. Hangman continued to use the staple gun, but at this point, Swerve just kept walking forward like it had no effect anymore. He then grabbed the staple gun and stapled Hangman right between the eyes. Swerve then placed a cinder block on the ring apron and hit a Death Valley driver to Hangman on top of it. Hangman answered back with a pile driver onto the guardrail, which was upright, and I have no idea how they were even able to maintain their balance up there. Page wrapped his entire body in barbed wire and hit a fallaway slam, and then took a barbed wire chair and delivered a moonsault with the chair to the floor, and then a tombstone on the chair for a near fall. Swerve came back with a powerbomb onto the chair, and then a double stop for two. Swerve then poured a bunch of tacks on Page's back and executed a 450 splash onto the back of Page, and then the JML driver for two. Page responded with a combination fallaway slam and moonsault to Swerve into a barbed wire board that was bridged across two chairs in the ring. He then hit a dead eye into the barbed wire and then wrapped barbed wire around Swerve's neck and delivered a buckshot lariat. Brian Cage then came out and hit an F10 on Page, but Page came back and put barbed wire on Cage's head and hit him with a buckshot lariat. Page then caught Nana and drilled him with a dead eye off the ring apron through a table on ring at ringside. All these distractions allowed Swerve to catch his breath and dropped Page by smashing the cinder block over his head. Swerve then mercifully ended the match by hanging the hangman across the top turnbuckle using a chain, which finally put Page down for the 10 count. This was brutal. The second match from the top, which was in a rough spot despite how good it was, was the tag bout between the Young Bucks and the team of Kenny Omega and Chris Jericho with the Bucks title opportunity on the line and Don Callis on commentary. The Bucks started to target Jericho's arm during the match, which had previously been injured by the Don Callis family. Jericho came back with a double lion salt on both Bucks. In an apparent heel turn, the Bucks delivered a low blow to Jericho and then one to Kenny after Kenny questioned their actions. Matt dropped Jericho with Jericho's own Judas effect and then they hit the BTE trigger and tried for the Meltzer driver, but Omega blocked it. Jericho then delivered a super kick out of the Bucks playbook. Later in the match, there was a spot where Jericho and one of the Bucks were positioned against opposite sides of the ropes, with Omega kind of at a crossroads, but he ultimately opted to nail Nick with a V-trigger and then hit the Snapdragon, but the one-winged angel was countered into a Poison Rana. Matt then hit Omega with his own one-winged angel, and then again went after Jericho's arm. Omega came back with a ripcord flying knee and then a final one-winged angel to win the match for his team. Following the match, both Omega and Jericho offered a handshake to the Bucks, who declined to accept and walked away. It was advertised as Adam Cole versus Jay White for the now vacant AEW world title in the main event, but before the match got underway, we heard the ambulance siren as MJF made a miraculous return just in the nick of time and replaced Cole in the main event, despite not even being checked by doctors or anything. 
The match was okay, but this almost insulting storyline completely took me out of it and removed most of my interest in this feud and all three of these performers, and these are three of my favorites in the whole company. White zeroed in his attacks on MJF's legs right away, and the guns tried to get involved, but they were caught and ejected from ringside. MJF tried to place White on the announce table, but the table broke before a move was hit, so he just went to the top rope and hit an elbow drop to White on the floor. White responded with an avalanche urinagi. White then rips the belt out of Cole's hands at ringside and hits MJF, but Max kicked out. Then there was a ref bump, and Cole placed the dynamite diamond ring on the canvas. White ended up beating MJF to it and put it on his own finger, but it took too long, allowing MJF to hit a low blow, causing White to drop the ring, which must have not fit around White's digit. MJF nailed White with the ring and then picked up the win to finally regain the title that he technically never lost. I honestly hated this match and feud, and I just wanted to see it end, so each guy can move on to something else. And that's exactly what I'm gonna do, is move on. And I'm moving on to talk about Survivor Series, which ended just about 12 hours and change ago. Let's take a look. One thing WWE is great at is their hype videos, and the Survivor Series opening was no exception. It was like watching a Chicago-based 1920s newscast covering the latest Al Capone story. I loved it. And from there, we went right into the women's war games match. With two of them on the card and only five matches, I kind of assumed one would be starting the show, and this was the right call. There were only eight participants in this match as opposed to the ten in the men's match, but for some reason this one seemed kind of longer. The damage control team came out apparently to a new theme and also all wearing kabuki masks, which was kind of cool. Becky Lynch and Bayley started out for their respective teams. Throughout this match, there were huge ruffle signs across the arena, which were kind of distracting for much of it. Ruffles, of course, was one of the sponsors for the event. Becky was the first one to taste the cage, but quickly retaliated by suplexing Bayley onto the steel platform that held the two rings together. She applied the disarm her, but it was too close to the ropes, allowing Dakota to jab her through the cage with a kendo stick to break the hold, and then Dakota passed the stick in for Bailey to use. Shotzi joined the match next, and Bailey tried to shut the cage door, but Shotzi slammed it back in her face, and then immediately brought in some chairs and a trash can. In fact, everyone who came out in both War Games matches brought some kind of weapon into the cage, which I never really liked, as the cage itself is supposed to be the weapon. But I suppose with the lack of blood these days, that extra gimmick is needed. Shotzi and Becky chased Bailey up to the top rope and attacked her from each side and then delivered a double flying forearm from the top rope. The other thing to point out is they added a new rule this year, or I think it's new, that if any member of a team were to escape the cage, that the entire team forfeits the War Games match. Which kind of led me to believe that something like that would happen, but fortunately it did not. Io came out next with a chain, and then was followed by Bianca, who used her braids as weapons, whipping her opponents. Kyrie joined the match next, marching to the ring, before bringing in a trash can lid. She hit Shotzi with a spinning lid shot to the head. The heels then buried Shotzi under a bunch of chairs, and then Io pressed Kyrie upwards, and she came down with an elbow drop onto the pile, which seemed like it should have hurt Kyrie more than Shotzi. Charlotte entered last for her team and hit two of her opponents with double natural selection from the top rope. Charlotte and Becky then got in each other's faces to continue the angle from SmackDown, and this allowed Io time to climb up to the top of the cage. She lowered the chain down to Nakoda, who tied a trash can to it, and Io used the chain like a dumbwaiter to pull the can back up to her. While this was going on, 
I'm not sure what the other participants were doing, but they were seemingly just standing in position for Io to complete this sequence. She leapt off the cage, wearing the trash can over her head, and crashed onto the pile below. I honestly never liked that move, as again, it looked like it would hurt Io more than anyone taking the move. Asuka was the last one in and brought in a table, much to the delight of the crowd, who embraced her with chants of thank you, Asuka, as they had been chanting for tables all match long. Asuka also brought in a fire extinguisher, as well as some unique kendo sticks, which kind of looked like samurai swords for all of her team members to use. At one point, the heel team actually tied Becky to Bianca using the chain. They were positioned back-to-back and seated, and then all four heels delivered simultaneous drop kicks from all four corners of the ring. Asuka misted Shotzi at one point and then hit a missile dropkick to Becky, who was wearing a trash can over her head. Charlotte then executed a moonsault off the top of the cage and actually made contact with her opponents on the way down. In fact, Io looked like she caught a knee to the head. Charlotte and Becky then started double-teaming and embraced with a hug. Asuka tried the mist again, but she missed the mist, and then Bianca blasted her with a fire extinguisher. Charlotte set up for a spear on Kyrie but Bailey ended up pushing Kyrie out of the way and taking the bullet for her team. Shotzi then landed a senton on Bailey, followed by a KOD from Bianca, and then Becky finally hit the manhandle slam to Bailey off the top rope through a table to win the match for her team. This was kind of the outcome I expected as it continues the story of Bailey being paranoid around the rest of damage control. There was an awful backstage segment which was basically just an ad for Ruffles Chips. Chelsea Green, Piper Niven, and Alpha Academy are all back there, and each eating a bag of Ruffles, until Pretty Deadly walks in and asks if they can have some crisps. This leads to a huge argument about crisps versus chips, and the Ruffles went flying. And then all of a sudden, R-Truth appears out of nowhere, and says that they're neither crisps nor chips, they're Ruffles. This was lame, but perfect spot for all involved. Sami Zayn is pacing around backstage as he's joined by Jay Uso, who asks what's up. Sami says he's starting to worry because he heard that Randy Orton hasn't yet arrived. Jay questions why Orton would even be there or want a team with him, since his family are the ones who took him out in the first place. Jay then accepts full responsibility if Orton doesn't show, and Sami says Jay shouldn't blame himself, and regardless of what happens, the two of them are going to stick together. The theme song for this year's Survivor Series is War Pigs by Black Sabbath, which I believe is the same theme that was used last year. The Miz challenged Gunther up next for the Intercontinental title. Miz actually delivered the first chop in the match, but Gunther answered right back with an open hand swat to the chest, which knocked Miz right down. Miz then developed a new strategy and went after Gunther's legs, utilizing Bret Hart's famous figure four around the ring post submission. Miz tried to rejoin Gunther in the ring with a springboard attack, but ended up eating a big boot on the way down, giving the advantage back to the champion. Miz eventually goes back to the leg until Gunther hits a huge drop kick and then a snap powerbomb for a near fall. Gunther then applies a sleeper, but Miz fights all the way to the corner and ends up ripping the turnbuckle pad off. As the referee attempted to put the pad back, Miz delivered a couple of low blows to escape the submission and then hit the skull-crushing finale for a huge near fall. Gunther went back to the sleeper and Miz ran him into the exposed turnbuckle and then kicked off of it into a pinning combination for another two count. Regardless of how I felt about Miz as a challenger, I have to say that I actually did bite on some of these near falls. Gunther beat Miz to their feet and nailed him with a devastating clothesline followed by a splash off the top ropes into Miz's back 
and then applied a Boston Crab with his knee across Miz's spine, which finally forced Miz into submission, so Gunther retains. It's announced that the next premium live event will take place in Saudi Arabia in January 2024, called WWE Experience. Judgment Day is backstage as Dominic Mysterio walks in. He says he hears that Randy Orton is not going to be here. Finn says either Orton doesn't show up and it's five against four, or he does show up and poisons his group from within. Either way, it's a victory for the Judgment Day. Priest says he's going to find Drew and tell him the news, and also discuss that other thing that they had talked about. Santos Escobar vs. Dragon Lee was up next. I'm not sure why this match was changed, but it's probably a better match than Escobar would have had with Carlito. I just find it hard to get into this program, as it's booked kind of backwards, with the heel at the numbers disadvantage against the group of babyfaces. However, this match was one-on-one. At one point, Escobar positioned Dragon's knee between the steps and the ring post, similar to what he did to Rey Mysterio, but Dragon escaped just in time. Lee comes back with a tope con hilo to the floor, and then Santos hits a top rope hurricane rana. Santos then tries to rip Dragon's mask off, actually dragging Lee across the ring with a handful of his mask, a la Eddie Guerrero versus Rey Mysterio at Halloween Havoc all those years ago. Dragon hits a sit-out powerbomb for a near-fall, but then Escobar responds with a destroyer, which Graves called a south-of-the-border destroyer, followed by a phantom driver, and that was all she wrote. In another weird segment-slash-ad, New Day arrived to the building for what I have no idea, since they aren't booked on the show, but they arrived in a Slim Jim sports car, which I thought belonged to L.A. Knight, who won the Battle Royal at SummerSlam. But anyway, this was just an ad for Slim Jim, which was the sponsor for the next match for the women's title between Rhea Ripley and Zoe Stark. Zoe came out wearing war paint across her face, which resembled a scar from a claw or something, similar to what Angel and Umberto have across their chests. Rhea, on the other hand, had another new look, kind of reminding me of Edward Scissorhands, or definitely something out of a Tim Burton movie. This was probably the weakest match of the night, and definitely the one match without any heat. I just found it hard to get into, knowing that Zoe didn't really have a hope in hell of winning the title. The crowd was actually booing Zoe, and I completely forgot that she's also a heel, so I guess it makes sense, but Rhea was the clear fan favorite. Zoe did get a few hope spots, but it wasn't enough. Basically, Rhea blocked an attempt at a Z360 and nailed Zoe with a back elbow, followed by the riptide to keep the title. Seth Rollins is in the locker room as Sammy and Jay walk in, and they're talking about Randy Orton still not being there. Cody Rhodes then walks in, and everyone turns to him for answers, with Cody promising that Orton will be there tonight. I kind of expected some kind of swerve, considering that while dropping hints, Cody never actually said the name Randy Orton. So that led into the men's war games match, and with the babyfaces already at the disadvantage since Orton wasn't out there with them. Seth and Finn started the match for their teams to kind of renew their rivalry. Seth launched himself over the top rope from ring one to meet Finn head-on with a flying attack in ring, two, in ring two. Finn then gained the advantage and bounced Seth off the cage a few times. As they were between rings, Finn hit a back body drop to Seth onto the steel platform that held the rings together. JD came out next and was met with a kick from Seth before even getting into the cage. JD fired back with a kendo stick, and then between rings, he delivered a quebrada moonsault to Seth, who was standing in ring one, which looked pretty cool. Jay Uso came out next and brought a chair in. He was cleaning house until JD stopped that momentum with a Spanish fly. The next team member for Judgment Day was set to enter, and Drew was about to step out, but was held back by Priest, who suggested that they follow the plan. 
So Priest came out instead and brought in a club or steel baton to use. Sammy entered next and grabbed hold of JD's kendo stick as JD tried to nail him before he got in. Sammy then slammed the cage door into JD's head and then brought in a table. Sammy also brought out a pipe that was hidden at the top of the cage. Drew finally entered and dominated. He tossed around Sammy and Seth before setting his sights on Jey Uso who struggled to his feet. Drew tried the claymore but was caught with a super kick from Jay. Jay and Sammy then delivered a 1D to Drew as Cody entered and pulled out a bull rope which is apparently hidden under the ring. Seth grabbed the other end of the rope and he and Cody exchanged words before using it to double clothesline their opponents. They then started arguing about where Orton is before Dominic Mysterio joined the match. Don basically played the JJ role, taking cheap shots wherever he could. But eventually, Don was surrounded by all four babyfaces who each took a shot as the other heels were recovering. Drew and Priest grabbed hold of Seth, Sammy, and Cody and hit a three-man chokeslam, which looked pretty cool. They then focused their efforts on Seth. JD hit a moonsault from one corner, Dom hit a frog splash, and then Finn hit the coup de grace on the champion. Priest then set up a table and delivered a razor's edge to Seth right through it. Priest then signaled to the back, and then Rhea Ripley came running out with the money in the bank briefcase and a referee. Before it could be cashed in, Randy Orton's music finally hit, and Orton made his triumphant return, and I was wondering the whole time why Priest couldn't have just cashed in anyway in the time it took Orton to get into the ring, and his partners could have just blocked Orton from entering. That didn't make a ton of sense, but Orton got in and started cleaning house. There was a cool spot where all five babyfaces grabbed all five heels and planted them from different sides of the ring with Orton's draping DDT. Orton then turned his attention to Jay and started having words, but then Priest tried to attack Orton from the side only for Jay to save him with a super kick to Priest. Orton then hit an RKO to Dom, and then Rollins delivered a stomp to Balor, while Cody hit a Cody cutter on Drew, followed by a huluva kick from Sammy, and then an Uso splash from Jay. And this was going pretty well the same as the women's match. Seth and Cody ended up chasing JD up to the top of the cage and then tossed him off with Orton meeting him on the way down with an RKO, which was a really cool spot. Cody then got the pin on Priest after hitting the crossroads. I'm not sure why they felt Priest had to take the pin in this match, but whatever. And then as the babyface team celebrated and the copyright graphic appeared on the screen, there was a bit of a delay, which was kind of odd, but made me think something was up. And then, then... Look in my eyes, what do you see? The answer is shock. Complete, total, utter shock. And maybe some hatred if you looked at Seth Rollins. But yes, the Chicago native returned home. CM Punk is back in the WWE and hell has officially frozen over. Things are going to get very interesting and I'm very curious to see what the ratings for this Monday's Raw will look like. I will get into that next week, but I'm out of here for now. Until we meet again, I leave you with an A, B, C, yeah.